In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome to this week's edition of Moving Forward. I am your host, Krista Nepper, and today my guest is Afam Onyema. Afam is an attorney, a philanthropist, and most important for our conversation today, the co-founder and COO of Genco. So Afam, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's just start out. So tell our listeners, what is Genco and why did you decide to found this organization? Sure. So the story begins with a experience my father had in high school in Nigeria. My Both my parents are native Nigerians. And my father went to a very prestigious boarding school in Nigeria that was run by Anglican priests. And there was a particular couple that really made an impact on his life. Uh, the husband was the English teacher and the wife was a doctor, medical doctor, who took care of his high school and the local community. And they had both come over from Liverpool, England to dedicate their life and service to the Nigerians in that region and to that school in particular. And at some point in my father's time at the high school, he was assigned to be an assistant to this doctor. And so he'd go along with her as she was seeing patients. And so he saw really up close and personal frontier medicine and learned a lot about malaria and all the various diseases and afflictions that that were so challenging in Africa and Nigeria, both then and now. And he also, through his experience, got to know this doctor who made a real effort to make sure that he understood what she was doing, why she was doing it. And he kept thinking this doctor and her husband had an amazing life, he assumed, in in England, certainly an easier life, more comfortable life than they had in Nigeria. Why would they leave that to to come to this community and care for these these students, these men and women and children? And my father really caught fire with the idea that here's someone who's dedicating her life in the service of others through medicine. Mm -hmm. And he caught that same fire and made a promise to that doctor way back in the 50s that he was going to do the same thing, that no matter where he went and what he did in life, he would find his way back to Nigeria to care for his community. And so he met my mom, who was studying to be a nurse. They got married. They came over to the, uh, to the U.S., to Chicago in particular, in the mid-70s with a plan to stay no more than four or five, maybe six years, learn as much as they could about modern medicine, raise some money, get some resources, and come back to Nigeria. But they had my older brother and two younger sisters and I and realized that we had amazing opportunities in the States. And would it be fair to pull us from those opportunities to fulfill this dream? And they decided that, of course, it would not be. And so they poured themselves into us and gave us opportunities to do whatever we could, whatever we wanted to, whatever our abilities would allow in terms of education and professional attainment. And we, we did so and with their, completely with their support and, and with them driving it forward. But they always told us, my dad especially, about this doctor, about this dream, about this promise that he had made. And as I got older... It became more real to me, especially as I was graduating Harvard and had spent four years in a great environment, certainly one of the best academic environments on the planet. 
but one that was really geared towards what can you do to be financially successful or politically powerful or culturally relevant and not as much thought was given to service to what can you do to help in different ways and I got to think more and more about that question as I got older as I went through college and, and wanted to focus more on service and realized that I had a great opportunity in learning more about my dad's story to serve in that way. And so I helped him more and more, never thinking that I would commit my life to it. And after three years of working in Chicago, went to Stanford Law School and got very much involved. And in terms of building Chinko, we became an official foundation. We started to, to do more work in Nigeria. And then at the end of my law school time, I had to make a decision between working for a law firm or doing this work full time, knowing that I couldn't do both well, and that if I did the, found, the law firm work, the foundation work would wither and, and die away because there was no one to pick it up. We didn't have money to hire someone outside the family. And I really and truly got up in the morning both excited and terrified about the, mm. the foundation work. And I think that's the key to any successful career, any successful passion. And so in the end, despite the sacrifice of financial means and professional uh, getting starting to climb a ladder and build a career, I decided to take the leap and work for Jinko full time and have been doing so since 2007. Wow. And I think that's a very powerful lesson. I say it all the time. Everything you want is always outside your comfort zone. And it sounds like that was true for you. Oh, absolutely. It was, you know, I'd always, growing up, I'd always been a worker bee. I wasn't someone who's entrepreneurial. I wasn't tinkering with stuff in my garage. I, I just, you give me some work, I'll do it. You kind of give me a boss, give me a structure and I'll thrive in that. Yeah. And this, and this is completely the opposite. You're, you're the boss. You're going, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're the boss, you're the janitor, you're the security guard, right. you're the, you're everything. You're, 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 you know, the accountant, everything. And, and it's also making up your day. Like literally, and, and, and what you, you get up in the morning, no one is keeping tabs on you. You're not punching a clock and you're not d- devote, dividing your, your hours into, you know, one-eighths or one-fourths and oh, all of yes. that. So you have to decide for yourself, what is a good day? What do I do today? What do I do tomorrow? What do I do next month and six months and a year? What's our 10-year plan? And, and so the challenge of that, I had to get used to that, that they certainly don't teach you that in law school. So it was something that I really had to, I struggled with and really had to develop on my own, but also talking to a lot of people who have done similar things and have taken similar leaps and just try to learn as much as I could from people who are much smarter than me. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you've done a good job. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about Nigeria. So there were opportunities that laid outside of the United States. Your father had always wanted to go back, but didn't. So can you give our listeners a little bit of background about Nigeria, maybe a little bit about the history that you and I had talked about previously, just to kind of set the stage as to the jumping off point for Jenko. Sure, sure. A lot of people don't know much about Nigeria besides what they... Boko Haram, you know, the, or, yeah, Boko yeah. Haram, and and kidnapped girls now, and and before that, getting emails from Nigerian princes, and, <laughs> and so corruption has always been a, this you know, I, episode, yeah, yeah. Whenever I go to, you know, I go to have an event or I talk to someone one on one, they they try to lighten the mood by saying, "Oh, are you the Nigerian prince who's right. promised me ten million dollars <laughs> if I give you my bank account?" And I, 
I tell him, you know, if I had if I had a dollar for every time I heard that joke, all of our work would be done, and right. Nigeria would be a paradise. And and so it has a very bad reputation. And we just try to tell we're honest. You know, Nigeria is a very challenging place, but it's also an incredibly important place. And uh, in fact, when I tell people this, almost ninety nine percent of the time they're they're shocked to to know that one out of every five Africans lives in Nigeria. It has a huge population, 180 million people. It's the largest economy in Africa by far. It's one of the largest democracies in, in the world and certainly in, in Africa. It's the co- continent's largest oil producer. Uh, at some point several years ago, we were, you know, we were getting a great deal of our oil from Nigeria. You hear about the Middle East, but we were getting a lot of oil from Nigeria. And so it has... It has this important stature, and it has a large size. It's split evenly between Christians and Muslims, and so it deals with a lot of religious issues. And it also, I have to say, it's on a lot of lists that, at the top of a lot of lists that you, you do not want to be on as a country. More women and children die in Nigeria than anywhere else in the world except for India. It has one of the largest population of HIV positive people has one of the largest populations of AIDS orphans and the largest number of motor vehicle accidents and all the challenges that result from that. So it's, it's this big raucous country that has a lot of potential and it's amazing. Nigerians leave the country and they thrive and there, there have been reports in U S census data that have revealed that Nigerians in America are one of the most educated subgroups in the entire country in terms of having bachelor degrees and advanced degrees in terms of their relative to their population here. So Nigerians leave the country and thrive, but because of a culture of corruption, because of various ethnic and religious issues, the country just can't come together and have catalyze that type of positive change within its own borders. And so uh, it became an independent country in 1960. It was formerly a British colony. And since then, it's just been racked by military coups and ethnic violence, a very devastating civil war and from 67 to 70. And, and since then, it's just been trying to find its identity as a country. I like to say that older Nigerians, you know, they'll first first tell you what their tribe is, whether they're Igbo or Yoruba or Hausa or or any of the other over 250 ethnic tribes, whereas younger Nigerians are starting to see themselves more and more as Nigerian and worrying less about religion, less about ethnicity, and more about how can we advance as a country. And that, I think, is where the hope lies and where the future lies is the country coming into its own, realizing the strength of its own limbs, the strength of its own, you know, an adolescent child that doesn't realize that it's not a kid anymore and has this newfound power, but it's still very awkward and uncoordinated. And, and so we, we play a very small role, a very small but critical role in trying to help Nigeria reach its potential and understand the power it has. And part of that, in our view, is providing excellent health care and really providing the sense that excellent healthcare can be done effectively in Nigeria, successfully in Nigeria. So if we're a part of that idea that this can be done in the country as it goes through this transition, then I think we'll have done a wonderful thing. I agree. And I think that's a very important point to make. 1960 was not that long ago. And it's very new as far as independence. And I think adolescence is a really good word to, to describe it, as you just said. So... 
can you tell us a little bit about, you mentioned providing excellent health care. I know you've done several missions to Nigeria. Can you tell us about that and what are Genco's long-term goals for the country? We became an official foundation in August 2005. So we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary Congratulations. this year. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard to believe. It's amazing yeah. that a decade has passed and, and you know, obviously we've done work before 2005, but, you know, in terms of officially making this a legal entity and beginning to put more form and substance into it. So in those 10 years, we've done five medical missions and four, within those five, four surgical missions. And we focused on hip and knee replacements and fixing bone fractures, which is a very neglected area in Nigeria and in Africa as a whole. When people think about healthcare and Nigeria and in Africa, they think about HIV AIDS, they think about yeah. malaria, um, and then they'll think about you know, women dying in childbirth and what have you, all of which are very, very critical issues to address. But there are you know, Gates Foundation, Clinton Foundation, there are a lot of people who are attacking those those issues. And But in terms of just, you know, I tell people, you know, you'll tear an ACL playing sports here, or you'll break a leg and you can see any number of doctors the next day or that same day. Imagine tearing your ACL, you know, tearing your Achilles tendon, breaking a leg and having no doctor in your state, in your region, in your country who can adequately address that issue and having to worry about flying out of the country and paying you know, sometimes two or three times the amount you make in a year to get that that affliction addressed. And so we're really the only organization in Nigeria that has been doing these regular medical missions in terms of hip and knee replacements and broken bone fractures. And so we're really proud of that. We have a wonderful partner in Zimmer Holdings, which is the world's leading manufacturer of hips and knees and implants and all the the various devices that go into a surgery like this, and we've had a wonderful relationship with their former chairman, John McGoldrick, and through that, we've been able to do these medical missions with various teams, and it's amazing the support we get from doctors, surgeons, nurses, other support staff who are not only willing to give up their time, but realize they have to personally fundraise to cover part of the expense of these missions. And so they're, they're sacrificing time away from their families, time away from their practices, they're raising money, and they're going into a very challenging environment. And they, I tell people I have never seen a group work as hard as I do for each, each mission we do. It's amazing how hard these teams work. It's just, it's, it's heartwarming, it's encouraging, it really it's inspiring to see people, they care so much and they see the need and we know we can only meet a fraction of that need on these medical missions. So we do what we can. We train local doctors to ensure that there's adequate follow-up and that they can do as much as they can when we're not there. And along with the medical missions, we've donated a really innovative bone fracture repair system. It's called SIGN, S-I-G-N, Fracture Care. And we had some donors in the U.S. pay for the system, and we went and installed it at a local hospital in Nigeria. And so now that hospital can fix complex bone fractures without needing a lot of the the really complex machinery and scanners that people use here to detect where the fracture is, how to repair it. They can safely and successfully fix fractures without needing that high cost equipment. And so as we speak, fractures are being repaired and 
So it's been really great for us to be able to make that donation. In addition to the missions, we're working on a Clinton Global Initiative to screen women and children for anemia. Anemia is a very dangerous blood condition. And in it, when you have anemia, you, you can't, your blood cells can't carry enough oxygen. And so you're constantly weak and tired and more susceptible to catching diseases or having a, uh, an ailment be more serious because you can't fight it off as well because you're not as strong, your immune system is weaker. And it's really devastating to pregnant women in particular because they're already in a more vulnerable state. And now when they're anemic, uh, you have a lot of women who are dying in childbirth or they have young kids who are anemic and, and dying as well. So the, the main challenge in fighting anemia in Africa and Nigeria is that the normal test for anemia is to draw blood, look under a microscope, and then make a decision on whether the person's anemic, which you can't do in, easily in Nigeria. It's just an, it's the, the medical labs aren't there. And so we partnered with a company in Irvine, California, Massimo, which has given us high-tech, non-invasive scanners. So within 10 seconds, you know whether someone's anemic and you can get them off the treatment. And so as we speak, we're scanning thousands of women and children in Southeast Nigeria. We're the only organization doing it in Nigeria and one of only three or four in all of Africa. So we're really proud of that. And then outside of healthcare, we've adopted a few schools in Southeast Nigeria, provided them with laptops and books and teachers' aids and improve their physical infrastructure so kids can learn in a better environment. And then our long-term goal is to build Nigeria's first truly world-class hospital. I tell people I want it to be the Mayo Clinic of Nigeria at some point. You know, we have to build up to it and do it in stages and, and do it in a way that makes sense. But eventually, you know, long after I'm gone, I want people to look at that hospital the way people look at and regard the Mayo Clinic. That's amazing. And I have to ask, and this might sound ignorant, but you were talking about the four surgical missions, and you had mentioned your father and you used the term frontier medicine. So is there a hospital, is there a place where these surgical missions take place, or are you in the countryside setting up makeshift operating rooms and doing hip and knee replacements there? Yes, it's, it's a challenge because you want to balance doing these surgeries and helping as many people, but you also have to confront really substandard infrastructure. And I tell people, you know, if there was a hospital in Nigeria or in the region where we work in Southeast Nigeria that could easily accommodate our work, then our work wouldn't be needed. It is needed. And it's because the hospitals there are so substandard. So what we do, we have to bring everything with us. We literally ship over a ton of equipment and supplies because everything that we need, we have to bring. We can't count on the hospital to have it. And we've always, we've done, as I mentioned, four medical missions, surgical missions. We did another medical mission where we just donated supplies as Nigeria was dealing with Ebola. But during the surgical missions, during each one of them, we had catastrophic power failures. The, mm. the, uh, the grid that the government runs would always uh, fail. And then the idea of having the backup generators is supposed to keep you uh, going and running through those power failures, but even the backup generators would break down and because they had never seen the type of use we put them through. I mean, we we're, were doing complex surgeries or saws and, and, and screws and all sorts of machines that draw power. And so during each one of them, we'd have these power failures and the surgeons would literally turn on headlamps and would bring in and turn on the lights on their iPhones to, to get through, you know, putting someone's 
giving someone a new knee or a new hip. And, and so we dealt with a lot of challenges in these local hospitals. The power would run out, the water would run out, the local the machinery that we would need locally wouldn't be there, it would be broken. And so there are always, you know, as we got, you know, from our first mission to our fourth, we learned what to do and how to address these challenges and get around them. But each one, each mission just convinced us more and more of the need to build a world-class hospital that sets a new standard. And we realized we can't keep trying to shoehorn these large, complex missions into hospitals that just aren't built for them. And so they did a lot of good. We do them again. It's, you know, tell, tell the person, anyone challenges whether the missions were any good or whether, you know, there was, was all a bunch of work for very little payoff. I say, well, talk to IK, who for 30 years had been in agonizing pain to the point of trying suicide a few times. Three decades of constant, unrelenting pain every minute of his life. And he got his surgery this past April and was up and walking three days later and has had his life changed forever for the good. And and that's certainly worth our time and our effort. And I tell people, imagine building a hospital where there can be an IK treated every day all day for the rest of your life, for the rest of your kid's life, for the rest of your yeah. grandkid's life. And that's what we're, we're aiming towards and working towards. That's amazing. God, some of those would be my worst fears. I just, you know, to run out of power right in the middle of a surgery, I can't even, you should see my face when you were describing that. I cannot <laughs> even imagine. Hey, Moving Forward listeners. If you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. And you're so passionate about this. I have to ask you, why did you decide to go to law school? Did medical <laughs> school ever cross your mind? or? Yes, yes. It's, it's almost embarrassing to say, but I was, I was pre-med. <laughs> okay, I'm aware I, I, I went into, <laughs> I went into Harvard. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting, and, and hopefully those who are listening, who might be the, the children of immigrants can understand this. There's always a great hope to have at least one doctor in the family. And, and my parents were no different. I was the one bright hope to be the doctor in the family. And, and so I went into Harvard and took all the pre-med classes and, and suffered through them. And, and I took the MCAT and was actually a few weeks away from mailing my medical school applications in. I had the, the bundle all ready to go to the post office and I just could not do it. I was just, I had no passion for it. And I probably knew this from the moment like you I did. signed up. You said up. suffered through. You know? Exactly, yeah. It's, 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 it was clear. It was, yeah. Even when I was going through my, my medical school, uh, you know, going to the classes and all that, I'd still poke my head into job fairs and go, oh, you're doing consulting. Tell me about that. Or yeah. tell me about the work you're doing in banking or you're working for on the business side of sports or what have you. Oh, you know, this is all very interesting. I never had that passion for medicine. And I just, it just took that moment of crisis to realize I just don't want to do this. I, I just don't, this is not for me. And, and so I ended up working for a public relations firm, a big corporate public relations firm for three years while actually I was thinking about going to business school. Okay. And and took the uh, took the GMAT, and so I've just made the rounds <laughs> of all the. Seriously, it's it's amazing 
how many standardized tests I prepared for and taken <laughs> and me nothing now. You know, I guess for right. the experience and, and all that. But I was I was dead set on going to business school. And I realized, wow, there's a lot of math in business school and numbers. And I hate math and numbers. And I just don't want to do Excel spreadsheets all day and, and do projections and all that stuff. So I, I, I go, well, law, you can just argue. You know, you can set up and say, no, I think this is justice demands this or you know my client is innocent and and it, I, just had, I had this very classic you know obviously uh, poorly informed vision of what law school was and so <laughs> I thought oh, yeah exactly yeah it's, you, don't, you don't have a lot of insight when no, you're like, when you're not, when you're outside uh, those those gilded halls and so right. so what's interesting is that during my time as undergrad at Harvard I worked at the law school there and I got to see up close and personal to some degree what law school was. And so I was always intrigued by it. And when I decided to make the decision to apply, I thought, well, if I get into Harvard, I'm, I'm going to go back. And I, I got in and was was planning on going, but I applied to Stanford and I got in uh, there as well. It's just a, a blessing to be able to, to have that decision. And Stanford said, you know, before you make this, before you decide and make a final decision, just come out to Palo Alto, come out to the Bay Area, we'll pay for your trip. And I thought, well, I've never been to the Bay Area and it'd be great. You might decide to go. It's a great trip. And right. so I went and it was just, it, it was amazing. I've never seen a sky that blue. I just, people seemed truly happy. There was a sense of innovation that you could almost smell in the air. And the dean, who I eventually became actually really good friends with and who was a Jinko supporter personally, told me and told our the, the group that was considering going to Stanford the following fall that you could do anything from here. You can be a corporate lawyer, you can get into government, you can found a nonprofit, you can found a startup. We just want to help you achieve and make a meaningful impact in, in this world. And I took him at his word and uh, I can almost guarantee that had I not gone to Stanford, I would not be doing Jinko work, not working for Jinko full time and not speaking with you about it today. Mm, that's very cool. Well, what do you think that you do best? You seem to have a sort of passion. I don't know if it's for the law, but maybe <laughs> tell us about what you do best. Sure. I think, and this is something that I, I've really worked all my life to emphasize and prioritize and something that people tell me often as I just, I enjoy people and I think that comes through and that's something that is so important in this job. When you're trying to raise money, when you're trying to get people to leave their families, come halfway around the world to a place where all they hear about is terrorism and kidnappings and Ebola and all of that, they have to trust you. And I, I've, I've really worked hard at getting people to understand that they can trust me, that I am genuinely passionate about this work. I have no ulterior motive. I tell people, you know, if you don't believe what I say, then believe what I'm doing and what I've given up in order yeah. to do this. And so, you know, from billionaires to Hall of Famers to my friends from high school, college, law school to, you know, a 14-year-old girl who wants to, you know, sell lemonade to support us, they all say, I, I believe in this cause, but I believe in you and I believe that you're genuine about it. Your passion gets me excited about it. And so I, I'm really, it's, it's humbling that people 
look to me and trust me and understand that I have the right motives and that I genuinely care about them. And that shines through and filters through in almost all the interactions I have. And it's just been great that that, that has, has happened. And as a result, so many of our donors and supporters are friends, are people that I'll spend half our time together talking about Jinko and the other half is talking about their lives, about my lives. I'll ask yeah. them for you know personal advice on on things that I'm going through or decisions I have to make and I'll celebrate the birth of their kids or their promotions and and they'll so it's it's certainly not a transactional thing and I, I am just down to the core of my being against transactional relationships. Everything for me has to be genuine or it's not worth it. I just really, really, really believe that. And I think, I know that that shines through in, in what I'm doing and the people I interact with while I'm doing it. Yeah, no, definitely. If I had to sum it up in a word, I would say connection. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always been important to me and it always will be. Oh, it's one of the most central things to my life is connecting with people. It's, yeah. it's, I get so much joy out of it. And I get so much joy when people see how much joy I get out of it. So it's, just, it's great. <laughs> I love that. Well, I know that you've had a lot of amazing things happen in your life, but tell us a little bit, you know, we all have a a darker side. What's the hardest thing that's ever happened to you and how did you overcome it? So it was interesting. When I started working on Jinko, seriously, I was in law school. And so you're just, you're, you're naturally so busy. I was dashing off from my property class to go to the medical school to do a talk about what I'm doing, or go to the business school to learn about how to run a nonprofit. You're we're having fundraisers and meanwhile you're trying to get papers done and study for finals. And so there was this it was you're, you're busy and you're feeling productive. And then that summer, right after I graduated from law school, I wanted to take the bar. I wanted to finish the process of being a lawyer and you're just ridiculously busy studying and preparing. And so you're just you're you're constantly churning. And then the bar exam's over. And I moved from the Bay Area to L.A. to set up shop and run Jinko. And you wake up one morning and it's, okay, build a hospital, save lives. And you have no idea where to begin. It is such a big, audacious goal that how do you even, how do I, where do you start? Forget building a hospital. What do I do from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m.? What do I do in the afternoon? And it was just... I after kind of having all this activity and running around, you just you're. It was very isolating because yeah. obviously you go from a, a campus where you just see your friends all the time and you're together and there's this camaraderie to just being literally alone. And well, and you seem very much like an extrovert that you thrive on that interaction. So I think yeah, more maybe more so than other people for you that might have been tougher. Absolutely, absolutely. You want to. I wanted to share in this work. I wanted to be in partnership with people. And I, you know, my, my, my father, he is, he's been just amazingly committed to me and to Jinko. And we have an amazing relationship. I like to tell people I've always loved my dad, but through this work, I found out how much I liked him and like mm, him. I like just that. So yeah. Pleasant. But you know, he's in Chicago and I'm, yeah. I'm in LA and, and I, my friends in LA were building their own legal careers. Everyone had their own lives. And so it was a, a tremendously lonely period where I was questioning myself. I had no idea what constituted a good day. I didn't know how to stitch my day together. I, I felt like I was just running in place. And 
and was didn't didn't fit into anything. I was I didn't have an office, and so I was literally home all the time. And it was really it was difficult. It was by far the most challenging period of my life. And I remember calling a lot of my friends from law school, outside of law school, and just saying, I I don't know how to do this. It's not that I don't want to do it. It's not that I I can't do it. I still know how. I, I, I literally don't know how to, you know, tomorrow face the day and make sure that it's productive in the way that, that it should be. And and so it was really, really challenging. And it really took me drilling down and saying, okay, forget about building a hospital. Forget about raising millions and tens of millions of dollars. What can you do today? Today you can learn about malaria. You can learn about AIDS. You can learn about building a, a nonprofit. You can listen to this webinar, go to this talk, do some research, and that'll be your day. Or you can send a bunch of emails and letters out to Stanford and Harvard alums and just tell them what you're doing, that you're now here in LA. Will they give you 20 minutes to meet with them? And I, I sent those letters by the thousands to people in the LA area and, and elsewhere just to try to get meetings on scheduled and build a base of support. And as I put more structure into my life and, and knew that, okay, well, every March, my dad and I are going to this global health conference at Yale or every October, we're going to have this event in Chicago, or I'm going to have this meeting with this person, you know, every four times a year. And I just started to put structure. I started to be more disciplined and Mayor Brown, which is a law firm that I worked at, uh, briefly before law school offered me space in their LA office. Uh, this is seven years ago, and to this day I'm still in this office. And that's been amazing in terms of giving structure to my life and giving me a workspace and kind of dividing the work from the home and also meeting people here at the office and all the different lawyers and business people in the various office buildings in this district here in LA. And it's just been wonderful. And and as we've had more accomplishments and we're building out our programs, there's been more work to do, more substance. And so that's kept me going. And you know, once in a while, I'll get those panic attacks of, it was today a good day? What do I do now? How do I make sure I'm effective? But it certainly is nowhere near where I was in those first, I would say, four or five months when I started working Jinko full-time, which exciting to start something new but terrifying in terms of how do I do this well yeah it sounds like a little bit of a spiritual crisis it's funny when you were speaking and you said oh okay well I'll just build a hospital today I had this image of I dream of genie pop into my head <laughs> like how yeah how do any of us do that but that's a real powerful lesson I'm sure for all of our listeners and I know I've struggled with that myself where you have an idea you know I want to write a book or I want to start a business or I want to you know start on Broadway well how the hell do I start that where is step one how do I you know move forward just a little bit so I have a different perspective and from there where do I go and it's just having the courage to incrementally move forward every single day and I think that's a really beautiful story to share absolutely it really really is. It's it's great to have dreams and you need to have dreams and big audacious goals, but you really do have to just nail down the first steps. I think that's what gets people the fear they have. I have so many yeah. friends who when they hear about Jinko, go, oh, I have my Jinko dream is to write a book or a screenplay or to or have a nonprofit doing something else. But how do I even begin? And I, I, I understand the challenge. I face the exact same thing. And you'd be just have to 
have courage and, and be okay in a sense with not always feeling that rush that everyone thinks everyone in nonprofit feels that we're saving the world and it's amazing. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we're saving kids lives and we're, we're hanging out with celebrities and it's just an amazing life. And it's so different than for-profit it's, it's, there's drudgery involved or challenges. You hear no so much. Yeah. It's amazing how much you hear, you hear no or not yet or not this. And, and so, but you just have to, in a sense, kind of be a bull about it and just keep being persistent and persistent and, and be okay with, okay, I'm, I'm feeling a little down today, but I'm still going to get this done. Or I'm, I'm questioning this, but I'm still going to get this done because it's better than the alternative of being frozen or even going backwards. Yeah, I agree with that is really give yourself permission to, it sounds cheesy, but feel your feelings and acknowledge, you know, yeah, this does suck. But then again, it's not personal. And I think also allowing yourself to be a beginner in any of these situations. I think so many times, and I know for myself, you accomplish so much like you, you know, graduated from undergrad, you graduated from a very prestigious law school, you past the bar and you think you've done all of this so it should just you're at this level now everything should be copacetic and it should be easy but no when you start anything new you're gonna have to be a beginner and to give yourself permission and allow yourself to grow and to do that and to fail or get the no and the not yet but still move forward anyway absolutely and this is something that i really hope your listeners will take to heart and something that i found incredibly valuable is don't be afraid whether it's you're trying, you're seeking money for a cause or you're seeking to get a new job or what have you. Don't be afraid to come to someone as a beginner or as someone seeking advice and help. The, when I go to a donor, I tell them, listen, I just want your insight and advice on how to do this well. And it's amazing how people open up when it's not just blatantly, I want you to write a check or I want you to give me a yeah. job or I want you, it's just, I want you to tell me, give me your advice, your insight. People, I, th- I think, and it's been my experience, there's a hunger for people to give advice and insight, to share their story. People want to share their story. They want to feel like they can help you in ways in terms of, I did this, you should consider doing this, or I did this, avoid this. And I've, I just really found that the best conversations I've had with our donors, potential donors, is sitting down with them and saying, listen, I'm really trying to stumble through this. I, I, I wasn't born to do this. It's almost really against my nature, but I want to do it well. You are really good at X, whether it's investing or playing in sports or what have you, winning you know, awards in, in cinema or, or television. Just tell me your secrets for success. What, how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with challenges? And there are certainly lessons that cross over that are, are universal. And I, it's amazing how comfortable. I don't care if they're a billionaire or an Oscar winner or a Hall of Famer. You just see them relax a little bit and say, yeah. okay, well, this is how I dealt with this. Because people want to dig into their own experiences and share them. They're it helps something them heal too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And they, they, you can only see them struggling with things. And, and it's, it's really been a great experience for me when you're dealing with someone in terms of why they give or how they give and the causes they support. It gets very personal. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about, you know, my, my mother took us to a soup kitchen every weekend. For you know, 20 years, we go to the same soup kitchen, no matter what our personal circumstances were. Or my father always taught me about investing, but he said, okay, well, you know, for every dollar you, you make, take 10 cents and make sure you give it to a good cause. And, and you, you learn so much about people when you go beyond how they make their money or why they're famous and just talk to them as human beings. And so I tell my friends who are 
a little skittish about, oh, I shouldn't email this CEO or I shouldn't email this alum who maybe can know someone. I say, listen, don't go at it in terms of, hey, Mr. Billionaire, I want to work for you. I want you to invest in my company. Just say, listen, you're, you've been successful in what you do. I really hunger and thirst to be successful in what I do. Can I just have some time for you to share your story with me? Yeah. And you'll be amazed how many people will respond positively. And again, you'll, you'll get no's and that doesn't, you know, doesn't guarantee someone's going to open up their wallet or their life to you. But I guarantee you'll get more yeses than you would if you just blatantly ask for money or you, you're very – uh, you know, it's about make, don't make it so much about you. I guess is a as yeah. a more concise way of putting it. Make it a, a either make it a shared story or make it about them, and you'll be surprised how good they feel talking about people. Love talking about themselves, and and uh, I think that's a good thing. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You just have to recognize that and be willing to just shut up sometimes and be a good listener. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's so true. Be willing to shut up. Yeah, absolutely. So if any of our listeners were interested in learning more about Genco, whether donating, volunteering, any upcoming events in which you are holding, how would they find out more information? Is there anything that's coming up in the future for the foundation? Sure. So you can always visit our website, which is www.geanco.org, genco.org, and that has great videos from our medical missions and some of the other work we're doing from our events across the the country. It has updates on what event is coming up. We have our big Los Angeles Hollywood event coming up in late September. We have our big Chicago gala coming up November 13th. And so those are two events that people are interested. They can learn more about those and they can look and see videos from our previous missions, some of the work that we're doing. We we do book drives and toy drives and all sorts of supply drives for the schools that we adopt in Nigeria. So if people are interested in contributing supplies, those will, of course, are always welcomed, um, as are any donations people are, are deem us worthy to give and, and can feel confident in knowing that those gifts are going to go to people truly in need. And we t- I tell people that you know, there, we, we, we have strength, and one of our gifts is that we have strength on both sides of the Atlantic. And so we can mm. do great work in Nigeria, which is a complicated, really, a country that doesn't work as, as well as, as things do here. Things here don't always work well, so you can imagine how things are in Nigeria. But because of our relationships, because of the trust we've built, because we say we're going to do something and do it, and because we have no interest at all in credit or payment for anything. We've built up a lot of goodwill with the government and with local communities, and so we can get stuff done in Nigeria. But we also have a strong base here in the States. Of course, I'm running things here from L.A., but we have board members all over the country, literally. And so, and we get audited, and our books are, are examined, and we have all of that structure that people trust here in the U.S. So we offer both of them. We offer being able to reach a remote village in Nigeria, but also being able to provide statements and proof that we're doing what we say we're going to do. And and we're just really, we've been blessed by the supporters who have come alongside and become members of the Chinko family. You know, it's not a hokey cliche. We, this whole thing began with a family story with my, my father and his dream it's become my dream. And so anyone who supports it truly becomes a member of our family. And I take that 
very seriously. Everyone involved with Jinko takes that very seriously. And we haven't gotten too big and too bureaucratic to forget that every donation is precious and every donation matters. And, and we, we are just so grateful for anyone who learns about our story and wants to become part of that story and part of our family. Mm, I can really feel that from your heart. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you. And I just, I really appreciate your interest in the work we're doing in Nigeria. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you. Did you like this podcast? If so, please rate us on iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. Until next week, this is Kristen Nepper. Keep moving forward and Sat Nam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.